Hey everyone, it's Caleb. I'm so glad that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Caleb Mason show. Here we want to ha- we want to create a safe place to have dangerous conversations, to have any type of conversation because we literally believe that anyone can learn, that we can learn from anyone and that we can learn from anything. And today who we're going to be learning from is Dr. Sung Chan Ra. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. He came out with a book a few years ago called Prophetic Lament, and that's what we're going to be talking with him uh, primarily about today. But I want to give you a little bit of background on him. He is an associate professor of church growth and evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois, and has authored several books as well. And incredible, really looking forward to this conversation that we're going to have in, in literally just a couple of minutes. But before we get to that, I do want to remind you that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend Sam Massey and if you have any audio or visual or video needs he is the person to hit up for any of those things and Sam just super grateful for you and just for providing your music and helping just make this podcast um, even better and so without any further wait I'm going to jump into my conversation with Dr. Raw. Dr. Ra, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and and I'm sure we'll cover um, a, a lot of stuff. But one of the things that I was really just curious about um, is your book, Prophetic Lament. Mm-hmm. And I, especially what's going on in the United States right now, um, I think it is an incredibly um relevant book that uh, that we probably need to pay attention to. And I'm always just curious of just understanding kind of the why behind uh, the works of art that people understand, because I think that just helps understand the context uh, just so much better. And so just as we're getting started, I'm just really interested in knowing what made you what made you write Prophetic Lament? Oh, well, sure. Um, the book is actually a commentary on the Book of Lamentations. Uh, which, of course, is a very under-resourced, underused uh, book of the Bible, very rarely preached upon. Not a whole lot of um, contemporary worship songs are based upon the Book of Lamentations. It's not very user-friendly, as uh, as we would say. Um, but uh, the, the long, long background on this is that when I was a church planner, and this is back in 1996, so this is going back on several decades now, uh, was a planning a multi-ethnic urban church in, a, in, a, in an urban neighborhood. Um, and as we were beginning to plant the church, uh, realized that most of our members and there were those that were coming to the church were highly, highly competent and highly um, accomplished individuals. Uh, we were right in the heart of Cambridge, which meant a lot of MIT and Harvard students and alum, Boston University, Boston College, Wellesley. There were just this incredible array of excellent schools in, uh, within a mile or so of our, of our church and realized that uh, these individuals that were coming to the church to serve the urban neighborhoods, serve the poor, be involved in multicultural, multi-ethnic ministry, uh, they really didn't understand suffering a whole lot. They understood victory and triumph because they had accomplished so much in their lives, uh, but they really didn't understand um, how to address pain and suffering that is in the world. And so the very first sermon series that I did in the um, in the uh, church, uh, which is kind of weird because, you know, you don't think about when you want to attract new people into the church, you do f- six weeks of lamenting. It's just really, really not something that you would teach people to do. Uh, but that's what we did and actually found that it resonated with significant uh, populations uh, and mostly the younger generation, um, uh, back then younger generation, now they're a little bit older, but back then the college students and the young adults 
uh, really found the themes of uh, Lamentations to be something that they were drawn to. Um, and so many, many years later, I revisited the book and the in the light of all the crises we were experiencing in our nation. And this is several years back now, but sadly, these crises have re you know keep reappearing and reoccurring. Uh, but especially in light of um, my background and my work in urban ministry and in areas of racial justice and racial reconciliation, um, I wanted to apply lamentations uh, to the landscape of uh, issues around justice, issues around racial reconciliation, issues around urban ministry. Uh, and so it, uh, a project that began in 1996 uh, with a sermon series at a church plant uh, became this book because many years later, the themes of Lamentations clearly, clearly had a lot to say uh, to the world. And I think, especially now in the last few weeks and months, we've seen the need for lament and the need to respond as a church through lament. Yeah. And, and for people who may not be uh, super familiar with just the term lament, you know, you mentioned it doesn't get a lot of airtime right now. Um, can you just talk a little bit about kind of what lament is? Sure. The way I define it in the book uh, is that it's an appropriate uh, ecclesial and liturgical response uh, to the reality of pain and suffering that is in the world. So the distinction in the Psalms, for example, which is the worship book of Israel, uh, and the and you'll find that about 60% of the Psalms in the book of uh, the book of Psalms out of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of celebration and victory. So these are the Psalms that we oftentimes sing in the church, which is, you know, our God is an awesome God. Uh, how majestic is your name in all the earth? The things that praise God for who he is and all the great things that he has done. Uh, but what some people don't recognize is that 40% of our Psalms um, are Psalms of what we call lament. And lament is when people recognize that things aren't quite right with the world, that there is pain, that there is suffering. And we cry out to God in lament. Sometimes that involves confession, repentance, uh, but oftentimes it's just a recognition that things aren't right with the world, that it's not the way God had intended the world to be. And we respond in lament and we respond in a cry out to God. Again, sometimes repentance and, uh, and calling out for forgiveness is, is a part of that. Uh, but uh, the, the setting is very important. It acknowledges that there is suffering and pain that is in the world. And that's why sometimes in the church in America in particular, we tend not to lament because we don't want to acknowledge that there is pain and suffering in the world. We don't want to deal with the, the history of suffering in the world. Uh, we don't want to deal with our culpability of, of, uh, of sin and wrong and evil that is in the world. And so um, it, is, it is an important part of scripture because you see it all over, not just the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Uh, unfortunately, we as a church in the 20th and 21st century tended to ignore these themes and jumped uh, overwhelmingly to celebration and victory and avoided the appropriate response to pain and suffering, which is lament. I'm, I'm really curious, just as I was listening to you talk, I thought of um, just the, the history of suffering that so many, that so many people have gone through and that it is yeah. literally beyond, like it is beyond even uh, individual people's lifetime. Um, can you just talk about the role of, or the relationship between lament and understanding like literally generations of suffering? Sure. Sure, lament is truth-telling, and that's what's so powerful about lament. Um, it is truth about who we are, where we are, what's going on around us. And so you will often find in lament words like remember. Uh, you'll find in, in lament um, a, a historical retelling of the, of the story of, uh, of Israel. Uh, and so, for example, in the book of Lamentations, um, what has happened to the people of God in the book of Lamentations is that they were judged. But it wasn't, they weren't just judged for their individual sins or for that particular moment. They were judged for generations and generations of disobedience and sinfulness. And so you get people, uh, especially those who were left behind, who were crying out in these laments. Uh, and they're oftentimes the widows, the orphans, the children, uh, the, those who are the most marginalized in that society because the exile took away all the literate, the leaders, the... Uh, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, they were all taken away into exile. And the only ones left are the very least of the, of the society. Uh, in some sense, they're probably the, um, the least guilty if you talk about the sins of Jerusalem and the sins of Israel. Uh, the widows, the orphans are the least guilty. They're the most punished in some sense, but the least guilty. And yet they cry out in repentance to God. 
And so here in the Book of Lamentations and throughout the, uh, the Lament Psalms, you'll see uh, prayers and uh, repentance offered up, um, not just for their immediate circumstances or sins that they have personally committed, but also generations and generations of sin that have occurred. Uh, maybe the best example of this is the person that is credited with the authorship of Lamentations is the prophet Jeremiah. And if you look at both the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, you'll notice uh, that Jeremiah's voice, when he comes out as in, in Jeremiah and Lamentations, when his voice appears, um, he oftentimes will be confessing sin, which if you know the history, Jeremiah would be the one person who was without sin, right? He didn't do these things. He, in fact, he was the one righteous voice crying out to God saying, Lord, you know, we deserve your judgment. We deserve your, your punishment. We've done wrong. So if there's one person who was not guilty in any of uh, the situations that was going on, it would have been Jeremiah. And yet Jeremiah is front and center repenting the sins, not the personal sins, because he could, he could justifiably say, I was right. I was on the side of God the whole time. I was saying God's words. But what he does is he confesses the sins of his forefathers, the sins of those that have gone on before him, uh, because one, he knows he benefited from that evil system that he was a part of. And two, he realizes that he's not an, an isolated individual. Uh, who has nothing to do with uh, uh, the society in which he lives. And so you see him shifting from they have sinned, O God, to I have sinned, O God. And so lament, uh, the power of lament is that it's not just a short-term, quick response to, oh, I did something wrong yesterday. Oh, I feel bad about something I did, you know, three years ago. Uh, it's acknowledging there's generations and generations of sin that Jeremiah and the people of God are confessing because they realize that uh, this is a part of what it means to lament together. And I just know from, from my own personal experience and even just talking with other people, I think that's a really hard connection for people to understand sometimes. And I'm just like, just talk a little bit more about why it's so important that we, that we understand our own history, whether that be um, as a country, whether that be in our own families or whatever that might be. Yeah, and that's a good parallel. Um, you know, as I, I was a pastor for many, many years, and one of the things I repeatedly, repeatedly noticed is that um, sometimes individuals operate out of their past experiences or even their previous experiences. So the, the reality of like a lot of studies around psychology and trauma is that trauma is multi-generational. In fact, there was a study that was done very recently uh, about the grandchildren of the Holocaust. And this was a scientific study done uh, through, you know, kind of psychological experiments and recognize that even those who are the grandchildren of the victims of the Holocaust, for whatever reason, genetically, even like um, um, in terms of DNA, uh, there's something that gets embedded into a person's psyche, uh, a person's soul, a person's spirit and mind and emotions because of generational trauma. Uh, we know this also in uh, kind of the slavery that uh, multiple generations later, people are still feeling the impact of that and that we are not isolated individuals. Uh, and we believe this because in the scriptures, it testifies that our sin is inherited from Adam. I mean, this is a very basic foundational theological framing for, for American Christians to say uh, we are sinners, not only because of the sins we have committed, but because of the sin that Adam committed, the original sin, and we have all inherited that original sin. Uh, well, if we believe that as kind of the whole history, it goes back to the very beginning of time, um, how much more is it that we have inherited a generational sin within a nation, the history of the nation? And so I think, uh, when, again, as, as a pastor, when I was trying to address the needs of my congregation, uh, it wasn't just, okay, what did you do yesterday that was wrong? What did you do a week ago that you feel sad about or guilty about? Uh, there's sometimes, well, there was something that happened in my family a generation ago or something that happened in my, in my growing up when I was a child uh, that I remember these kind of uh, tragic and, and traumatic situations. So I, I think uh, we don't recognize how profoundly uh, we are impacted generationally and corporately uh, in our spiritual lives. And so that's very critical. And I would say the parallel is, again, if you as a pastor are concerned about the spiritual life of a congregant, you have to recognize that it's not just that individual, it's the family system they grew up in. It's the, uh, the family history that's a part of that person's life. And that is true of things like racism and poverty 
things like um, um, uh, white supremacy, that these are generational issues. This isn't just popping up out of nowhere. And so that history is necessary to know because we want to know how we have been shaped and formed and how we continue to live out of that formation, even if it's generations later. What, what might be some good steps for, for us better understanding what our own history is, even in our own familial history? What are some things that we could do to understand that? Yeah, and I, I go back to the Book of Lamentations, and one of the things I look at is the genre of the Book of Lamentations. It is the genre, obviously, of lament, but lament has like half a dozen to a dozen subgenres. There's all these sub individual lament, corporate lament. Uh, Lamentations happens to be specifically written to uh, three of the chapters in what's called a, a funeral dirge lament. It's it's like a it's like a eulogy or more like a, a cry out to to God because something or someone has died. In this case, Jerusalem. But the idea is that somebody has died. There's a dead body. There's there's, there's death has has been has really occurred. And so one I think uh, maybe mindset change that we need is that the problem of race in America and the problem of injustice in America is not a hospital visit, but it is a funeral service. And that's a very big difference in how we approach a problem, right? So when we approach the problem like a hospital visit because the body is still alive and there's life still possible, uh, you know, you get together, you sing a few hymns, you pray for one another because you believe that um, the circumstances aren't that bad that the person could recover from this. You know, this is just someone who's sick. You know, that person can come out of the hospital very soon. Uh, but in a funeral, this, there's a dead body, and you've got to deal with a dead body. And sometimes our allergy to deal with racism is because we don't want to deal with a dead body, and maybe the possibility that some of us caused the death of that body, uh, or that the dead bodies are harder to deal with than a hospital visit, which is much more optimistic. And you know, even if it's a hospital visit, you still have hope, hope but in a, in, a, in a funeral service, you don't have that kind of hope. Um, and so the hope, I think, for me comes from our acknowledgement that uh, this is the reality of the world we live in. Uh, we're not talking about a hospital visit where we join hands and sing a few songs. We're talking about dead bodies. And for many of us, it is to recognize and walk through the history of how did these dead bodies get here. And the fact is that most of these dead bodies that we have to grieve and mourn over are the bodies of black men and women. Uh, whether it was because of slavery, whether because of Jim Crow laws or lynchings, and in more recent years, police brutality, uh, the, the way that black bodies have been devalued in American society, that's a, 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 a historical fact that goes back several, several centuries that we have to address. And that's where sometimes the disconnect is because we, wanna, we think this is a hospital. We think it's, hey, just a few songs, just a you know, little bit of a, a, you know, better food and a little bit of a, you know, a surgery here and there, and, and we're okay. Uh, but no, these are dead bodies, and we've got to deal with the dead bodies. And so a lot of that is the mindset change that says, how are we going to approach this problem? Like we're going to just fix it and talk about it and get rid of it? Or do we really need to lament the reality of death that just permeates this conversation? That, that is such a powerful illustration. I never thought of that that way. So th thank you for doing the work of coming up with that, Arbar, um, and just helping understand. I'm, I'm curious, one of the things that you write about in the book is one of the things that gets in the way of us lamenting is you talk about exceptionalism. Yeah. And I was just wondering, can you, can you just unpack that a little bit? Sure. Exceptionalism is not a uniquely American idea or even an American Christian idea, um, but I think Americans might have perfected it. <laughs> you know, the idea that we are an exceptional people is a pretty common, you know, thing. Like, uh, you know, you see this in almost every culture, those kind of the self-perception of we are an exceptional, special people. Um, I think, though, the, the problem is that one in the U.S., there's a conflation of like American Christian exceptionalism and American exceptionalism. So kind of the self-perception is that we are exceptional because we're a Christian nation. Uh, and, the, and the problem with that exceptionalism is that it's tied in with triumphalism. So one, this exceptionalism has kind of some dysfunctional theological problems with it, the theological roots that are, that are probably inaccurate and inappropriate. But then the second part of it is the belief that this exceptionalism leads to our inevitable triumph that we will always win because we're exceptional. Now, the theology, of course, is kind of seeing ourselves as exceptional tied into this idea of God chooses people, you know, the chosen people of Israel that we see in the Old Testament, 
that God has chosen Israel to give him special favor, make them a special people. And there is some bad theology that equates America with as, as kind of the natural next uh, receptors of God's favor and that we are not the next generation of God's chosen people. Uh, and that is a faulty theology because one, it's not in the Bible. I mean, even God's favor upon Israel, there's some kind of you know, conditions there. And uh, we actually see this in the book of Lamentations where God says, uh, you know, the favor that you had was because my word and my presence was there. And now that's, that, that, that's gone, you know, Jerusalem has fallen. And so this idea of an exceptional people favored by God uh, even if it applies to Israel in the Old Testament, and it does, of course, it doesn't apply to America in the 20th, 21st century. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, but we, we believe that about ourselves. We're an exceptional people. We are God's chosen instrument of his peace. Uh, and that's why we can go and, and take African bodies as slaves because, you know, we're exceptional people. We can do that kind of things. Uh, that's why we can go and, and wipe out the native people and take over their lines, lives, uh, take over their lands. Why? Because we're an exceptional people. We're allowed to do that kind of thing. God has favored us. Uh, that's why we can say we're going to kick out these people that don't look like us. Why? Because we're an exceptional people. We need to preserve that exceptionalism. We need to preserve that, uh, that purity. Uh, and so there is a very faulty theology that comes and, and has shaped some of our, our American kind of exceptional ideas. And, um, and I, what I go back to again is, uh, please show me anywhere in the Bible, any, just even a single phrase anywhere that says the United States of America is exceptional. Not, you know, God chooses people. Yeah, he, choose, he chose the nation of Israel. We are not Israel. That's nowhere in the Bible either. So to kind of claim that exceptionalism, to claim that, oh, we are in the line of this great exceptional people that God has chosen, that's, a, that's just, that's a heresy, actually. And so if we have built our politics, we have built our ecclesiology around this idea of, of white American Christian exceptionalism, uh, that's, let's say it, it's a heresy. It's a flat out heresy to claim a white American Christian exceptionalism over and against all other people groups, because that is not in the Bible at all. What, what might be some examples of what that exceptionalism looks like, like today in 2020? Yeah, well, it's the belief that uh, Americans are in a, in a kind of a, in a special uh, status uh, versus the rest of the world. Uh, you certainly see this with kind of, a, to be very specific, the white American Christian exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ways that I think exceptionalism and maybe privilege is another way to use the word exceptionalism. Uh, the belief that um, uh, we don't need to talk about Black Lives Mattering because all lives matter. Well, that's a privilege you can assert, uh, even though the fact, the fact is there's never been a moment in American history where we've said all lives do not matter. That phrase does not exist. All lives do not matter. There is the phrase black lives do not matter. There is the repeated social narrative, political narrative, black lives do not matter. So there's never been a, a moment, a statement in American history where we have said all lives do not matter. So to say all lives matter is not a appropriate response to black lives matter. That black lives matter is a challenge to white American exceptionalism because white Americans have, have always had the benefit and privilege of knowing, well, your life does matter. Uh, we will do whatever it takes to preserve your life. Um, you could guard your house with guns in, the, in your front lawn uh, because your life is worth preserving. Uh, you, can, you can call the police on a black man in a, in a park because your life is worth preserving. Um, you can you know, uh, beat up a 17-year-old and venture to kill him because your lives, your property are worth preserving. Uh, but history has repeatedly said black lives do not matter. The Dred Scott Act, the Three-Fifths Compromise, uh, slavery, Jim Crow laws, mass incarceration. Um, and so there is a, a kind of an assumption of privilege that allows a person to say, uh, I, don't, I, I reject that mantra, I reject that, uh, that phrase, because it's more important that we talk about me than we talk about the history of suffering and, and trauma in America. Uh, even some of the, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to get into the, the background of this, but um, if I had a choice, and this is again privilege, if I had a choice between being forced to bake a cake for a gay wedding versus um, being, being having a chokehold put on me and, and being killed, um, I would bake the cake. 
right? I mean, <laughs> that's, no, that's a no-brainer for me. Mm-hmm. So if the worst thing society can do to me is force me to bake a cake for a gay wedding, and the worst thing society can and has done is to choke the life out of a person who really has not done anything. Um, if that's the case, then, you know, uh, I don't know what the battle should be. My battle should be Black Lives Matter because clearly the nine, nearly nine minutes a person is being having the life choked out of him uh, is a more atrocious, horrific crime against humanity than if I were to force to be forced to bake a cake and actually be given money to bake a cake. It just happens to be for a gay wedding. I, I'm just, I'm just not seeing the, uh, the parallel there, and yeah. that's where I, I'm, I'm stunned by those who are so passionate about. I refuse to bake a cake for a gay couple, and lacking the passion to say, wait, how terrible is it that a person made in the image of God literally had the life choked out of him, the breath, the ruach of God was literally pushed out of his life with a with a chokehold and with you know with the uh, knee on his neck. Why is that like acceptable? And making a cake for a gay wedding not acceptable. Uh, and that's where some of the privilege comes in. And that's where some of the exceptionalism comes in. It says, I have the right not only to my life, but I have the right to not wear a mask. I have the right to not bake a cake. Um, well, I'm not disagreeing with those rights per se, but let's talk about the right to life that that African-American had that was literally ripped out of him. Let's talk about Ahmaud Arbery's life that was literally ripped out of him. Tamir Rice's life that was literally ripped out of him. Uh, those things feel like a more significant battle that I should fight. And, you know, that's, that's where I think um, white American exceptionalism, Christian exceptionalism, the belief that you're a chosen people and you have certain rights, uh, that oftentimes means you're denying the rights of others. Uh, and in this case, the right to life. Uh, for an African-American uh, whose, you know, whose very life was taken from him, that life feels less important to some than your rights to not wear a mask, your rights to not pick a cake. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are some of the other things that get in the way of us um, just lamenting well besides exceptionalism? Yeah, so I mentioned triumphalism as kind of another thread that keeps us from lamenting. And if we assume that we will inevitably be victorious in all of our efforts, um, and that again comes from kind of the perception of self-perception of Israel and self-perception of the church, uh, and that uh, we are so chosen and exceptional that everything we do will be victorious, uh, that leads to the absence of lament. So if you're living in a world where you know you will always win, or you believe it's your birthright to always win, um, then why would you lament? Um, if, you believe in, if you live in a world that you know you always win and therefore you might always be right, that there is nothing wrong you can do uh, or that you haven't done anything wrong. Um, and, and that kind of arrogance is pretty commonplace where why should I say I did this wrong when you know, I didn't and therefore I won't lament, I won't cry out in forgiveness. And again, this goes back to the very foundation of how we understand scripture and how we understand the word of God, which I think teaches us that central to our relationship with God is confession and repentance. And if so, if someone were to say, I don't feel the need to repent. I don't feel the need to ask for forgiveness. Why? I haven't done anything wrong. Even if you've done something wrong and you just refuse to admit it, that's a triumphalism, exceptionalism that says, I'm so special and unique that I should never have to do what other people are doing to get, you know, have access to the truth of, of the gospel, which is repentance, which is, begins with the acknowledgement of human sinfulness. And so uh, that's where, again, the heresy for me is, because what we're seeing are, are, are people who refuse to confess and repent, even though the reality of sin is right before our eyes. So if there is a sin of racism, then to not confess and repent and lament over that is going against the, the, the holiness, righteousness, and justice of God. Uh, if there is the sin of, uh, of brokenness in our society, uh, if there's the sin of um, I'm doing something that could potentially harm my neighbor, and therefore I'm not loving my neighbor as myself, well, then that's a sin that needs to be confronted. Um, and so that triumphalism, that belief that I'm an exceptional person, I do things right, um, I haven't done anything wrong, or even if I did, why should I confess it? Why should I repent of it? 
that clearly prevents us from lamenting. And again, I think we're seeing that all over our society right now to say, uh, you know, why should I wear a mask? You know, I haven't done, I, I probably don't have it. So I don't need, I'm not going to harm anybody. Well, that's an exceptional triumphalistic attitude. Well, it's going to go away eventually. I mean, it's not going away soon, but it's going away eventually. So why should I have to wear a mask? Well, that again is this exceptional triumphalistic assumption that, um, oh, God won't harm me if the churches meet, then nobody's going to get COVID from, from churches meeting together. Uh, that's an exceptional triumphalistic narrative. That is not merited. That is not earned. Just like our salvation is not earned and merited. Nobody earned our salvation and merited. Our, our sanctification is not earned and merited. Uh, to assume that our, we have this bubble around us and that we're going to be protected from COVID-19 or we're going to be, we're, we're exempt from this, the, the corporate sin of racism is a hyper exceptional, hyper triumphalistic model that believes in one special status and, uh, and believes that because of that, I don't have to worry about all these other things. And, and I can see if kind of what you were saying as well is that sometimes we can, we can confuse that God will ultimately triumph in the end with, with our triumph as well. How can you yes. tell, how can you tell the difference between the two whenever like, because some, because sometimes and it may be very rarely, sometimes it is like, Hey, we are on the side of God triumphing in the yes. end. Yes. And sometimes it is, Hey, we, we are confusing, confusing the two. How can you tell if you're confusing the two? Yeah, well, I mean, I think scripture is like one of the ways that we can know the difference here. And good theology is always a good answer to, to, uh, to, to just a messed up worldview. So I would say I agree with you that God will triumph in the end. Uh, and this comes from our understanding of the kingdom theology that was laid out by a number of different scholars over, the, over many centuries, uh, which says that um, God's ultimate victory uh, over, the, over all that is wrong and evil in the world um, is something that Jesus is going to has already done on the cross, of course, uh, but will co- consummate and culminate upon his return. And so, you know, as a Christian, that's one of the things that I cling to, that the victory of God, the kingdom of God, the triumph of God uh, is inevitable. It is going to happen. But because it's inevitable, in fact, in many of the passages in Scripture, uh, the idea of the kingdom coming and the kingdom being fulfilled is written what's called the uh, pluperfect or um, the, uh, the perfect tense, which means it's a future event, but it's written in the past tense because there's such certainty that it's going to happen. So that's very reassuring for me as a Christian to believe that God's truth and, and, and uh, kingdom will ultimately triumph. But here's the other freeing part I think we need to embrace, which is not only is God victorious and triumphant, he doesn't need me to be to make that happen because it's written in the perfect tense it's already going to happen it is a sealed deal jesus said it himself on the cross it is finished he has promised that he will return and bring all these things to consummation the last thing he needs me is to tell god oh god by the way this is how your kingdom triumphs uh god this is how we win if we build a wall we will win for the kingdom of god the last thing god needs is for him to hear from me what he, what he needs to win this victory. He's already won this victory. The victory is certain. He doesn't need me to tell him what that victory is. So that's where we would kind of need to make the distinction between what is victory ultimate for kingdom of God, what is victory for Americans or white American Christians. And the other way to look at this is to say, uh, God moves on past our kind of limitations of him. So right now, as many of us know, um, the center of Christianity is not the United States at all. Uh, the center of Christianity is Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And that within the next 20 years or so, uh, about 70 to 80% of Christians in the world will be in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Uh, there's some statistical evidence that shows that within the next 10, 20 years, potentially, the most Christian nations in terms of the number of Christians could possibly be China and India. Uh, just because of the growth of the church in China. Most of the underground churches that you can't even count because they're growing so fast. Uh, in India, there's been uh, some massive movement around, especially the Dalits, the formerly untouchable people, now are converting to Christianity in significant numbers. Um, and meanwhile, the numbers are very clear in the U.S. that Christianity is in very, very sharp decline. Um, in fact, the last number that I saw was that white evangelicals made up only 17% of the U.S. population. Uh, it's like double that in terms of the voting population, but in terms of the U.S. population, white evangelicals make up 17%. That is not a 
a Christian nation at this point. <laughs> that is not a white American Christian nation because that number is shrinking faster and faster. Uh, where the real move of God is, are in places like Africa, places like Asia, and places like uh, Latin America, where uh, the biggest churches in the world are in places like Africa, Nigeria, and, and Seoul, and Singapore. Uh, and for, for us as the U.S. to kind of keep claiming ourselves as the center of the move of God, that's delusional. It's just not fact. It's just not statistics. Um, the center of, of, the, of God's move right now is outside of the United States. And so that reality has to sink in. Uh, that, those are the facts that need to sink in to say, uh, where are we as a church in America right now? Well, let's be honest. The church in America is not flourishing. It's foundering. Uh, and where it's flourishing are the places that you think we need to go help them. Africa, Asia, Latin America, they actually need to help us because that's where those continents are just growing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches are growing. The people are moving. Uh, and, and the U.S. is not there anymore. And the U.S. is not in that place anymore. And so our sense of triumphalism and exceptionalism is challenged just by the facts on the ground. This is not the way the world is right now. What, what can the uh, United States church learn from, from Latin America and Africa and Asia? That the, what, what can we learn from them right now? Yeah, I think the, the global church is teaching us um, that uh, oftentimes uh, the gospel moves and, um, and, the, and the work of God, the spirit of God moves uh, not among the powerful, but among the powerless. And that the gospel um, is really um, where it spreads and, and where there is conversion and where there is activism and dynamic move of the gospel is not among the rich and the powerful, but it's really among the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed. And this is, that's, that's biblical, by the way. That's always been in the scriptures. That, and, and throughout church's history, we've seen that over and over again. It is oftentimes the marginalized, the oppressed groups where the gospel really spreads. And we've seen this over and over again in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, uh, where it is the marginalized, the, most, the least of our, uh, of our brothers and our sisters who come to faith because they turn to God. And so I think that's a pretty important lesson for us in the United States, that is our goal to seek more power in our society, uh, is, or is our goal that in the absence of that power, in the, in the sense of we are maybe are less powerful in the world, uh, that that's when we not turn not to claim more power in the world, but actually fall on our knees and ask for help from God. Uh, that's one of the key missing ingredients because I, I know, and we've been documenting this for years in terms of the academy of, of how sharp the decline has been in American, mostly white American churches have been in this precipitous decline. Um, every kind of statistic bears this out. The white church in America is dying. It's, it's, it's on this kind of downward slope. It has been for the last 20 years. Uh, the only reason the numbers look okay in America as a whole is because of immigrant churches African-American churches, multi-ethnic churches, those numbers are creeping up, but the number of white churches is just on this downward slope. Um, and so um, one of the responses has been to, we got to get more power. You know, we got we to gotta be able to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. We've got to go out there and, you know, get our, get our power back and get the right people in the Supreme Court. That's how we're going to restore the power to the church or restore and bring revival to the church. Wow, I wish Jesus had planned that many years back, right? I mean, wouldn't that have been great if Jesus had, had used that approach and said, what I really need is not to be on this cross. Uh, what I really need is to, you know, get to Rome and become the emperor. That's what I really need to do. Or, you know, at least be the emperor's advisor. Or at least I get to choose the emperor. That's the goal of my life here on or That's the example that I want to set for the church in the future. That, you know, when you're on the cross, you get off that cross, you get the angels to carry you to Rome and make you the emperor's sidekick. Uh, clearly, that's not what happened. Jesus stayed on the cross and out of the death on the cross came ultimate victory and power. His resurrection it was a was, was, was result of his crucifixion. And his crucifixion found its fulfillment in the resurrection and, and his ascension as well. And so we are claiming a methodology and a powerful and a power-hungry approach that Jesus never took. And so for us to, to actually say, what does it mean to revive the church? Uh, it might mean death on a cross. Uh, what does it mean to renew the, the work of God in our communities? Uh, it might mean a laying down of our lives and picking up the cross and following Jesus. And uh, that could mean, and I think it does mean, uh, becoming a voice and, and, and showing the caring concern 
for the very least of our brothers and our sisters. I, I'm, I'm pained that we don't see Jesus in the church anymore. That's why a lot of young people are walking. They hear Jesus. Every other word people say is Jesus, and they say in Jesus' name, but the words aren't really about who Jesus is. And so young people are, you know, they can smell that out, and they walk into a church, and they see Jesus' name everywhere, but there's really no character and life of Jesus evident in the church. So that's why young people are walking, because they're saying, where's Jesus? You talk about him, but he's not really here. And, and wouldn't that be amazing if we actually took seriously the words of Matthew 25? And we could begin to see Jesus in the very least of our brothers and our sisters, the poor, those in prison, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who have a police officer's neck on their uh, boot on their necks. Uh, wouldn't it be amazing if we, that's how we began to see Jesus, rather than trying to see Jesus in our, in our power structures. Uh, we really began to see Jesus in the very least of our brothers and our sisters, those that are suffering, and actually began to uh, love these brothers and our sisters like they were Jesus. What you're saying is just so, so challenging and so, um, so powerful. Um, and as you were talking, I was, I was just curious and I don't want to, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I was just thinking, is there, is there a connection between what we were talking about earlier, lamenting and staying close? Cause I feel like lamenting helps us stay close to the people who are, who are the oppressed, the people who are yes. powerless. Yes. And uh, like just to, just kind of to tie back earlier to what yes. that looks like, what, what, does, what does lamenting well look like for, for ourselves? And then what yes. does it look like to lament well with someone else who is going through good. pain? Good. That's really good. And that's actually one of the, the main directions that I take in prophetic lament, which is, again, going back to the authorship, I, I kind of have this joke that, um, Jeremiah is credited with the authorship of Lamentations, but he probably didn't, those aren't probably his words. Uh, the joke is that if you compare Jeremiah to the book of Lamentations, both are credited to Lamentation, uh, Jeremiah, but they clearly are not the same author. It's just the styles are so different. I say it's like Shakespeare and Kendrick Lamar. They're, 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 they're both great writers, but probably not the same person because their styles are so different. And so if you say Jeremiah and Lamentations are the same author, it's, it's really hard to uh, support that. So why is that the case then? Uh, well, Jeremiah is probably the only one left who could read or write because of the exile, right? Everybody else was taken away. So Jeremiah is the only candidate. So he's usually been credited with writing the book of Lamentations. So he probably wrote down the words, but they really aren't his words. And this is what's so powerful. He has the privilege, he has the power as a prophet and as a, someone who's educated and who's literate, who could read and write in that society at that time. He, again, might be the only one left who could do that. Uh, and yet, it's not about him. It's not about him, his voice being front and center. Now, he shows up every once in a while as a prophet narrator, oftentimes to confess alongside those who are seeking God. But he really, to be blunt, to put it crassly, he shuts up and he gets out of the way and let, the, especially the widows, the orphans, the women, the children, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, their voices are front and center in the book of Lamentations. In fact, I, I argue that Lamentations might be the most feminine book of the Bible, because again, the men have been sent away into exile, and Jeremiah is one of the few that are left. And instead of him saying, oh, here's what I'm seeing, he actually allows the people to speak for themselves. In fact, the culmination of the book of Lamentations for me is chapter five, the last book of the, of the, of the, of the, of the uh, last chapter of the book where Jeremiah completely shuts up. He completely disappears from the story. And now the people actually pray directly to God. And if there's something that I think could be happening right now, especially for those of us who are privileged, who do have the education, who are in positions of power, who have a microphone like, like we do, uh, who have a, a way to speak on these issues, um, it's not to say our spiel. It's not to say what we want to say. But actually, maybe we shut up, we get out of the way and let uh, the, the, the very least of our brothers and our sisters, the marginalized, those who have been silenced, let their voices rise up. And I've been, I've been really fortunate that I've had some very uh, key mentors in my life personally uh, that have, uh, you know, my, my uh, pastoral mentors when I was a pastor 
were mostly African-American pastors. Um, my academic mentors at Duke were mostly African-American professors. Uh, in more recent years, my, my other doctorate was with um, Latino scholars, and I work with Latino scholars. In my more recent years, I've, uh, my latest book is co-authored with a Native American. I've, I've been really blessed and honored with, uh, with Native American scholars who have influenced me. Um, and uh, there comes a point where um, I want to start elevating their voices more than my own. I want the voices of those who have been told to, hey, you know, your voice doesn't matter, or hey, your voice has nothing to say. So I think in the Book of Lamentations, one of the more beautiful things that Jeremiah, the curator or the editor of this volume does, is he actually shuts up and he gets out of the way and he actually lifts up the stories and the voices and the cries of those that have been hurt the most. And so I would actually challenge many, especially white American Christians who do have a platform, who do have a microphone. Um, it's not time for you to give your expert opinion. For one, you're not an expert on this topic. You don't know anything about it. <laughs> go and learn about it and go and, and, and study and read and meet people who know about this, but don't become the expert overnight just because you, you, know, you know how to grow a church or you know how to have good music at your church doesn't make you an expert on race relations and the image of God in all human beings. That's not your expertise. Um, but use your microphone that you do have uh, to just kind of shut up and, and bring others in who could actually maybe say something more powerful than you should be and you might be saying. Um, so I think uh, the, the, the lesson of Lamentations is a powerful one. Um, again, can we see uh, Jesus in the imprisoned and in the poor and in the hungry and the thirsty and yes, the oppressed and the marginalized? and let their voices rise up and through that let jesus's voice come through and i think what you're speaking to is the i don't know if it's the temptation or the the challenge that a lot of pastors and a lot of leaders um and i think all, all of us who are listening included is that we feel like we have to have the answer yeah to something we feel <laughs> like we need to provide hope well, yeah. What have, what have you learned in, in your own life and even uh, through Lamentations that has helped you combat yeah. that mentality? Yeah, well, lament is, um, is uh, in the book of Lamentations and in the laments in the Psalms um, really give these alternative examples, right? So, for example, Lamentations does not end on a happy note. Uh, God does not restore Israel and Jerusalem right away. In fact, at the back, at the, the last verse is actually fairly negative. God, have you forgotten us and forsaken us forever? It's really kind of a downer. Uh, but sometimes life, life is like that. There are moments where, you know, you don't have all the answers and you kind of leave with things open-ended. Um, maybe kind of a silly example, not a silly example, but a, an example that's kind of a pet peeve of mine is when I go to Good Friday services and people want to have a happy ending to a Good Friday service, Folks, that's not the point of the Good Friday service. <laughs> Sunday, go ahead. Have your celebration because that's appropriate. But a Good Friday service is not the time to say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. You know, aren't we a great, wonderful people? We're so happy, Lord. Good Friday is the, is the lament that didn't end. It didn't close. Not at that moment. Now, it does get resolved on Easter Sunday. And, and, and then Saturday, the, the Saturday in between is also a powerful, you know, spiritual moment as well. Uh, but I think um, most of us are so quick to get to the triumph of Easter Sunday that we don't sometimes stay in the pain of, of Good Friday or in that kind of in-between space on that Saturday. Um, so I would say that are, are there ways that you can actually begin to make lament and uh, these kinds of places and moments of pain and suffering a normal part of the, the Christian life, uh, of, the, of the church's life, uh, so that, you know, um, you know, every service does not have to end on a happy note. Uh, um, every sermon does not have to say, and you too can be a better human being and have a nicer car and big, live in a bigger house. You don't have to end every sermon like that. <laughs> what you can say is that sometimes that there is pain in the world. The pain does not resolve in one 30-minute sermon. And sometimes we carry that pain throughout the week. Uh, and maybe that's what we need to do this week. Um, uh, sometimes in the, in the worship, you don't have to always end with this kind of jumping up and down and everybody's happy. Sometimes you end with um, a moment of reflection uh, where you cry out for mercy and you just wait for God to speak. Uh, sometimes I think that's what we're missing. We don't wait for God to speak. We already give ourselves the answer. You know, we sing songs of lament and then we don't wait for God to speak to us forgiveness or maybe even more judgment. 
we just say, oh, yes, Lord, we figured it out. And then we just kind of sing our happy songs. So I think the discipline of lament, the practice of lament in the church is, and again, long-term, not just, you know, not just for this moment or not just when something bad happens, but long-term practice of lament uh, as a part of the ritual and uh, uh, lit liturgy and, um, and worship life of the church, the preaching life of the church. Um, I think that is one of the ways we can begin to change the story around lament. Another thing, just, just as I was thinking through our conversation that we were going to have, and this may be an ignorant question, but I was just wondering, how do you know when to stop lamenting? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Well, I will say that in the big picture, our, our lament does end, mm -hmm. uh, but that's when Christ returns and he will wipe away every tear. And there will be no tear and death and no more fear and all, this, all the good stuff that's wiped away in heaven. Um, I don't think we're there yet. Um, to me, it's, it's sort of like the pendulum, as I was saying, has been swung so far in this direction in the absence of lament that I'm kind of like one of those that are saying, well, let's swing the pendulum the complete other direction. But you might be asking the wrong guy. <laughs> I want the pendulum to go so far over here that, you know, uh, hopefully it'll come back to the middle as the pendulum swims in the other direction. Um, so I, I would say we're not even close to that space, but I do think it, that is a part of it. Um, I also think that uh, the practice of lament uh, will actually lead us into a deeper celebration, right? So uh, if we just celebrate uh, that we have good things, that feels very superficial and almost, um, well, it feels consumeristic. Like, you know, hey, if God gives me good things, then I'll celebrate. But if our lament leads us to a space where we have acknowledged the depth of our sin and the brokenness of our society and the brokenness of our lives, then our celebration is that much more profound. And so I, I think you can enter into that celebration, even if all the aspects of that lament are not solved. Uh, and that's where the now and the not yet kingdom theology comes in, that God will bring hope and bring salvation, bring his shalom, even to the, to the deepest of human brokenness. So I think we can celebrate that even if we don't see it, to celebrate, yes, God would do it, versus celebrating, yes, we did it, or yes, we figured it out. That's a big difference. So I think lament is not necessarily closing in lament, but we can move from lament to a greater sense of hope. And uh, that comes in Lamentations as well, where um, because God was faithful to judge, and he was the, the word hesed, the, the, the faithfulness of God, the, the covenant loyalty of God, because he was loyal to the covenant that demanded that he judge wrong, we can trust and believe that his covenant loyalty will also be faithful to forgive and to restore. Now, even if that hasn't happened yet, again, perfect tense, I think we can move from lament to that hope, but I don't want to bypass lament before we get to that space that says, yes, God can, will, and has promised restoration and hope, and that is something to celebrate, but in order to get there, we have to recognize the, the reality of lament. Uh, just, just as we're wrapping up, I want to uh, just think of the person who's going, okay, I'm on board. I want to do this. What are a couple of good, where are some good places to start? Sure. I mean, you know, th in this day and age, there's so many resources out there. Um, and I would say, obviously, uh, books are, are a great resource. Start with my book, Prophetic Lament, which will introduce you to the, the discipline of lament, but also put it in the context of a lot of what's going on in the world around us, especially on the racial conflict and um, uh, areas of how we address uh, justice to the poor, things like that. So uh, those are kind of good places to start. And, and corresponding to that is maybe looking at the passages of scripture that you've ignored in the past. We, we love the book of Romans. We love the book of Ephesians. We love Galatians. Well, there's some stuff in Amos that might be worth taking a look at. There's the book of Lamentations. There's the wisdom literature, um, the book of James. There's kind of books of the Bible that we tend to gloss over or uh, superficially try to look at. And so if, if you're folks, someone who says, I want to get my, my theology out of scripture, then do it. Do it from the whole canon of scripture, not just two or three uh, cherry pick passages of scripture. Go to the whole canon of scripture. Uh, and then again, the readings that are coming. So, you know, when I look at the readings, uh, a lot of the readings that are triumphalistic, those are the bestsellers, sadly. You know, you can have a purpose-driven church. You can be a better you. You can, you know, those are actual titles of, of books that are popular. The two of the best-selling books were those two titles. And they really focus on, you know, triumph and victory and celebration. Uh, change your reading list to look at places where there is more suffering. The cross and the lynching tree, the wounded cross, uh, the wounded heart of God. You know, there's, there's other texts that actually speak more about suffering 
that you've ignored because you were kind of on this track of triumphalism. So that would be another kind of way of looking at it. And certainly there, there are uh, YouTube sermons and, and teachings that, you know, this is, this is the information era. And if you look for it, you can find information that is out there that will kind of teach you some things, especially like the history of slavery in America, the history of racism in America, the history of the Native American community. Uh, these are important stories that you need to go back and learn. And again, there are resources out there that, uh, that, are, uh, that are available. Uh, and I would talk and begin to, uh, begin to have these cross-cultural relationships uh, both as mentors in your life, those who can teach you, uh, and as friends. But I would say having a, a cross-cultural mentor is very significant. Um, and, and learn from them where their narrative is coming from, where their perspective is coming from. Uh, and that could be another growth edge as well. Um, I, I think there's, again, in this information era, uh, there's a lot of bad information out there. Uh, take the time to find some of the good information that is out there. Take the time to read through you know, as an academic, peer-reviewed books, meaning that several academics have looked at this. Uh, read the books that are being used in kind of academic settings, but that are accessible. Prophetic Lament is one of those books. Next Evangelicalism, my most recent book, Unsettling Truths, is another place to, to take a look at. There are more and more books out there that have, like, written by academics. Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby uh, is another kind of historical look at racism in America. Uh, Vince Bantu's book, um, you know, these are excellent. Uh, Austin Channing Brown's book, um, uh, Sheila Wise Rose book. Um, uh, you know, there's, these are all African-American authors who have written just beautiful, beautiful, intellectually sharp works at the same time accessible. Um, and so, you know, do the work to, to try to find some of these uh, spaces where you can enter into that conversation. Well, Dr. Ra, I know that people are going to want to continue to learn from you and <laughs> pick up your books. Where's the best place for people to go to keep learning from you and to pick up your books as well? Sure. Amazon is a great place to, to kind of go to get uh, the books. Uh, Unsettling Truth is the latest book I co-authored with Mark Charles, a Native American activist. And uh, we write about um, the, uh, the role of the church in terms of this, the theological and the social imagination, particularly around the doctrine of discovery. So it's a historical theological text. Uh, so that's kind of a, a place where you can go. Uh, InnoVarsity Press, where uh, this book was written and two of my other books were written, they're doing a sale right now. Hey, go for it. 50% uh, off certain titles. And I believe two of those books are 50% off. So that's a great bargain to, to jump onto right now. Um, I, I am looking, if you are a pastor, uh, go ahead and reach out to me because um, uh, we are actually trying some kind of like larger scale coaching and training session for those who want to be involved in, uh, in, in this dialogue. And especially if you're new to this conversation and you want um, like a kind of a series of talks or a series of conversations around this, uh, go ahead and contact me and I can put you in touch with an organization that is trying to put together some curriculum. Uh, that's 12, uh, 12 month long curriculum that will help you explore this topic in depth, but also from the perspective of, of Christian ministers as, as I, I, I am. They actually were trying to bring in pastors and uh, seminary professors and others who can see this through the lens of Christianity, uh, but also have been in conversations around this for quite some time. So, um, and this is actually, unfortunately, reserved for pastors. So if you're a pastor, associate pastor, even uh, senior pastors, uh, pastor or church uh, staff member, uh, go ahead and contact me and I'll, I'll put you through to see if we can get you signed up for something like this. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for all the work that you're doing as it concerns um, just lament and racial reconciliation and, and justice as well. Thank you. Thank you for your work. And thank you for having me on today. Dr. Roth, thanks so much for being on the podcast again today and just super grateful for all of the work that you're doing. Remember to pick up any of his books that you've mentioned, pick up Prophetic Lament, which is what we talked about a lot, or really any other works that he has as well. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure that you don't miss our next episode is by hitting subscribe on whatever podcast player you use. Or if you happen to listen to the podcast on Spotify like me, you can go ahead and hit that follow button and you'll never miss an episode. The best way to make sure that you don't miss is through subscribing. 
Also just want to shout out Sam Massey and just thanks again for creating the music for us today as well. And just thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for helping uh, create a safe place to where we can continue to have dangerous conversations where we can continue to learn from anyone and from everyone as well. My name is Kayla Mason and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.